Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 274, The Schuyler Sisters in Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm talking about the Schuyler Sisters, who were, of course, made famous in the musical Hamilton. Since I recently got sued almost into the poorhouse for copyright infringement, I'm going to resist the temptation to play a clip of their introductory song, but you can set this to music in your head. Angelica, Eliza, and Peggy. This week, however, we're only talking about the first two sisters, and for the most part, just Angelica. Fans of the musical know that there was a flirtation between Angelica and Hamilton, but that relationship was exaggerated for the show. Her actual romance and marriage were downplayed for the show, but it was that union that brought Angelica Schuyler Church to Boston, where she lived for over two years under an assumed name. What was she doing here, and who was the mysterious John Carter who escorted her here? We'll find out in a moment, but before we do, I just want to pause and thank our latest Patreon sponsor, who just goes by S. Listeners like S make it possible for me to make Hub History by offsetting expenses like podcast media hosting, website hosting and security, automatic transcription, and online audio processing tools. By signing up to give as little as $2 or as much as $50 per month, our Patreon sponsors allow me to forget about the show's finances and focus on researching obscure topics like Angelica Schuyler and her life in Boston. Supporters who don't want a monthly commitment can also give a one-time contribution on PayPal, and that helps us prepare for unexpected expenses, like failed hardware or my legal woes from last summer and fall. To everyone who's already supporting the show, thank you. If you're not yet supporting the show and you'd like to start, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support us link. And thanks again to all our new and returning sponsors. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Longtime listeners will remember that this isn't the first episode of the podcast to be inspired by the Hamilton musical. I talked about dueling in Boston in episodes 62 and 216, in a story with a lot of parallels to Hamilton's life, and even more parallels to the musical. In February 2023, I had a chance to see a touring production of Hamilton when the show returned to Boston. That was just 12 days after my ankle surgery, so I was definitely attending against doctor's orders. I didn't yet really have the arm strength to travel very far on my crutches, but we made it work. Thanks to the neighbors in our row who had patience while I poked and bumped them and figured out where to park my crutches during the show and apologies to everyone who I cut off in the bathroom line during intermission. After I got over my early resentment of Lin-Manuel's poor treatment of John Adams in the show, I came to really appreciate the level of research he put into his writing, even if he picked the wrong founding father to write about as far as I'm concerned. However, there are areas where he took some pretty significant liberties, and the character of Angelica Schuyler was one of them. One of those liberties was a moment when Angelica asks Hamilton if he deliberately misplaced a comma in his latest letter, changing my dearest Angelica to my dearest Angelica. 
Thanks to my recent copyright woes, I'm more sensitive to posting audio clips recently, but in a 2020 interview on C-SPAN, Hamilton historian Joanne B. Freeman described the real events that inspired the song. An interesting thing the play flips on its head, there's a moment in which Angelica asks Hamilton about a misplaced comma. You wrote me a letter and it said, My dearest Angelica. And she wants to know if Hamilton meant it. In reality, Angelica misplaced the comma, and he writes the letter back. Like, she basically answers, no, I did not mean anything special by that, but thank you very much. So it's interesting for plotter character elements that play puts that on its head. They were close friends. The real letter was written by Angelica to Hamilton in 1787, and the slip of the comma was hers. Instead of saying, my dear sir... She moved the comma one word to the left, so it read as, Indeed, my dear. Sir, if my path was strewed with as many roses as you have filled your letter with compliments, I should not now lament my absence from America. As Freeman and other historians have pointed out, their spouses read and often contributed to their letters, so that would have been a profoundly stupid way to carry out any sort of real extramarital flirtation. Hamilton's response was appropriately humorous and dismissive, writing, You ladies despise the pedantry of punctuation. There was a most critical comma in your last letter. It is my interest that it should have been designed, but I presume it was accidental. Another moment of poetic license comes in the song Nonstop, wrapping up the first act and setting the scene for the post-war period in the second. Angelica's character interjects with a verse of her own, singing, I am sailing off to London. I'm accompanied by someone who always pays. I've found a wealthy husband who will keep me in comfort for all my days. He's not a lot of fun, but there's no one who can match you for turn of phrase, my Alexander. The musical is Hamilton's story, not hers, but that little verse glosses over a lot of history. The implication is that she's marrying a rich but boring man who could provide the economic security that the future Treasury Secretary could not. But that's not exactly what happened. They may have been sailing off to London, but not until after they made a long stop in Boston. Long enough that their first two children were probably born here. And that new husband of hers may have been rich, or at least on the way to becoming rich, but he was far from boring. In fact, at the time he met and married Angelica Schuyler, and for the first few years of their marriage, that wealthy husband was mired in nearly constant controversy and living under an assumed name. The man who would eventually keep Angelica Schuyler in comfort for all her days arrived in North America about a year before the outbreak of war, under somewhat mysterious circumstances. In a 1950 article about the family mansion, Winifred Knight Thornton noted, Sometime before the beginning of the Revolutionary War, there appeared in Boston a young Englishman by the name of John Carter. He was a fine-looking youth, well-educated, and evidently a gentleman. His sympathies were with the colonies, and he made friends among the men who resented England's treatment of her American subjects. I have not been able to find the exact date of his crossing the Atlantic, nor his age when he arrived on this side. In 1794, a book was published in Britain called 
the Whig Club, or a sketch of modern patriotism, which was basically an anonymous skewering of the political class. In it, the nameless author gives the most popular theory about why John Carter had to leave London 20 years earlier. He commenced his career with a small fortune and a considerable share of shrewdness and effrontery. The slow gains of a tradesman were despised by his aspiring genius, and he determined to either rapidly rise into opulence or to reduce himself to bankruptcy. He attained the latter alternative, and after several mornings spent unsuccessfully at the stock exchange, and as many nights passed equally unpropitiously at a coffee house in Fleet Street, he found himself a considerable sum worse than nothing. In this situation, he determined to save government the expense of transporting him to America, and with what little he could scrape together, he embarked for New York, leaving his creditors to lament their credulity. According to a very brief profile of this young rapscallion from the History of Parliament Trust, stock exchange speculation and gambling were responsible for his bankruptcy in August 1774, when he was described as a grocer with premises in Mark Lane. The full truth will never be known, but that isn't the only theory about why Carter had to leave his home. Winifred Thornton's article gives the deadly alternate theory. There are two stories as to why he adopted the alias of Carter. One, that he had fought a duel in his own country with a man of rank, and, supposing his opponent killed, fled under an assumed name. Thornton's article also gives a third and less salacious explanation. The other story claimed that he was named for John Barker, who was married to his father's sister. Barker was a wealthy man who had no children and had intimated that his wife's nephew would be his heir. When the young man, friendly to the colonies, decided to go to America, he feared his uncle's disapproval and went under an assumed name, hoping his departure would pass unnoticed. Murder will out, however, and his flight and its reasons were discovered. The man who called himself John Carter may have landed in Boston in late 1774, but he didn't stay here very long. Our anonymous sketch of modern patriotism explains how easy it could be for someone who was outspoken enough in talking trash about the king in Parliament to ingratiate himself with the innermost circles of the patriot cause. In this case, that innermost circle also included Angelica Schuyler's father. He arrived in the colonies at the moment when the impolitic measures of Lord North had kindled a flame which the best blood of Britain was so lavish to extinguish. To a desperate man, any revolution must be advantageous. A fluent tongue and an unblushing countenance served him in the place of more extensive talents. He was not cautious in aspersing that mother country from which he deemed himself forever exiled. The boldness of his language introduced him to the acquaintance and the table of General Schuyler. General Philip Schuyler was just the man for a young immigrant to ingratiate himself with. Schuyler came from old money in upstate New York, and by the summer of 1776, he was in charge of the northern department of the fledgling Continental Army. About a month after Schuyler was appointed to that position, John Carter was appointed to an important office in his orbit. Congress took a break from debating the Articles of Confederation and chose him as essentially an auditor, 
a role for which his only evident qualifications were strong opinions about the patriot cause, a loud mouth, and a passable understanding of general accounting practices. The Journal of the Second Continental Congress recorded on July 26, 1776, Congress proceeded to the election of three commissioners to liquidate and settle the accounts in the Northern Department. And the ballots being taken, Mr. James Milligan, Mr. John Carter, and Mr. John Wells were elected. Since Carter was essentially auditing Schuyler's books, the two men had to work closely together. That had the side benefit of putting him in close contact with the general's eldest daughter, Angelica. At the time, she was 20 years old, and he was about 28. Over the course of the next 11 months, the two kids got closer and closer, right under the general's nose, until finally on July 3, 1777, Philip Schuyler wrote to an acquaintance, Carter and my eldest daughter ran off and married on the 23rd instant. Unacquainted with his family, his connections, and situation in life, the match was exceedingly disagreeable to me and I had signified it to him. Interestingly, the word instant usually meant the same month, so the use here may refer to the marrying on June 23rd, or, as J.L. Bell pointed out in a 2017 article, the letter may have simply been misstated. Schuyler continues, But as there is no undoing this Gordian knot, I took what I hope you will think the prudent part. I frowned. I made them humble themselves, forgave, and called them home. After eloping, the Carters spent some time with Angelica's mother's side of the family, the Van Rensselaers. Then they returned to the Schuyler home in Albany after Philip relented. After just a few months, however, the newlyweds were ready to move on again, this time to further ports. John Carter had a line on a get-rich-quick scheme and so he resigned from his position as an auditor. His letter of resignation is lost to history, but the acceptance of it remains in the Journal of the Second Continental Congress, in an entry dated September 15, 1777. A letter of the 8th from John Carter, one of the commissioners for auditing accounts in the Northern Department, requesting, as important business requires his immediate presence in Boston, that another commissioner may be appointed in his room. Also, a petition from Robert White, Deputy Commissary General of Issues, requesting, as upon trial he finds it impossible for him to do the duties of the office, that he may have leave to resign his commission, were read. Whereupon, resolved, that, for the reasons assigned, Mr. Carter and Mr. White have leave to resign their commissions. The Carter family arrived in Boston in the autumn of 1777. According to Tilar Mazeo's biography of her, Eliza Schuyler, soon to be Hamilton, joined the Carters in Boston by December 1777, helping her older sister through her first pregnancy. In the book, she gives this description of the domestic life of the Schuyler sisters in Boston. John dressed in the latest styles, sparing no expense on his embroidered waistcoats and neck stocks, and he wanted to be surrounded by opulence at home also. Angelica's dinner menus, the sisters quickly learned, were not up to her husband's exacting standards. I entreat you to purchase for Mrs. Carter, John requested of an agent, one or two of the best cookery books, as she is a young housekeeper and wants to gain experience. 
Not that Angelica or Eliza did a great deal of the actual cooking. John and Angelica owned at least one slave, a young African man named Ben, and they almost certainly owned at least one or two female domestics. Angelica, however, was responsible for managing the housekeeping budget and directing the menu, and in wartime Boston, procuring food and supplies was a constant struggle. Budgets were never Angelica's strong point. Eliza wrote down the figures for her sister in careful columns and tried to make sense of Angelica's impulsive orders to tradesmen. Famous painter and former Washington aide John Trumbull was about Angelica's own age, and he had also just resigned from a Continental Commission. In his autobiography, he describes how he rekindled a friendship that he had first struck up in Albany. In May 1777, immediately after my resignation, my military accounts were audited and settled at Albany by the proper accounting officer, John Carter. This gentleman, who soon after married Angelica, the eldest daughter of General Schuyler, resided in 1778 and 1779 in Boston, where I was studying, and the acquaintance which commenced at Albany was continued. The Carters and Trumbull weren't the only people who were relocating from upstate New York to the Boston area in the fall of 1777. As I described in a July 2021 episode about a prison ship riot on Boston Harbor, British General Burgoyne led an army south from Canada in October 1777. His orders were to link up with a column coming north from New York City and cut off New England along the Hudson-Champlain Corridor. With the rebellious New Englanders effectively isolated, the British leadership believed that the rest of the colonies could be quickly brought to heel. But they never got a chance to test the hypothesis. Continentals and militia surrounded Burgoyne's army and fought a series of battles over 18 days, many of which were close to the Schuyler family estate. Finally, after losing over a thousand soldiers and making no progress, Burgoyne surrendered his entire army on October 17th. The document detailing the terms of surrender was called the Saratoga Convention, and the nearly 6,000 British soldiers who became prisoners that day would be called the Convention Army. The agreement called for them to march to Boston and then ship out to Europe, never to fight on this continent again, though Congress eventually found a pretext to keep them as POWs until the end of the war. A German grenadier from Brunswick was marched straight down the Hudson, then across Massachusetts more or less on the route of the Mass Pike, covering about 200 miles on foot in less than a month. The Journal of Johann Benz records that they marched through Watertown on November 7, 1777, and into Winter Hill, where they were put into barracks, which he described in his journal. The barracks were only put together with boards. The gables were open. There were no windows, but just open holes. We had neither wood nor straw to lie on. Most had lost their knapsacks. No shirts, no blankets, the regimentals torn, and here, a penetrating cold. We were here exactly one year and two days. During the time we were here, many died of scurvy, and very many deserted. Our supplies were still quite good here, though we got salt fish at times, which we, however, resold to the inhabitants. Every Thursday we had parade, and marched past Generals Phillips and Radiesel, while our oboists were playing. 
We had our own guard, and to stem desertions, we provided daily one picket of one captain, two officers, and sixty men. Whenever we wanted to go out, we had passes from the mayor of Cambridge and received our writ with the name of our own officer. Another prisoner from Brunswick, who also arrived at the Convention Army, had a very different experience of captivity in Cambridge. Baroness Frederica von Massal Radiesel and her husband, General Friedrich Adolf Radiesel, had stayed with Philip Schuyler in Albany after the surrender, and she would become familiar with his daughter and her possibly good-for-nothing husband during her time in Cambridge. Unlike Private Benz's account of the drafty barracks with no blankets, the Baroness would know nothing but comfort during her time here. She and her husband were paroled in a loyalist former mansion on Tory Row along Brattle Street in Cambridge. In his research for a 2017 article, local historian J.L. Bell dug up a translation of Baroness Frederica's memoir, and it reveals her true feelings about John Carter. None of our gentlemen were allowed to go into Boston. Curiosity and desire urged me to pay a visit to Madame Carter, the daughter of General Schuyler, and I dined at her house several times. The city throughout is pretty, but inhabited by violent patriots and full of wicked people. The women especially were so shameless that they regarded me with repugnance and even spit at me when I passed by them. Madame Carter was as gentle and good as her parents but her husband was wicked and treacherous. She came often to visit us, and also dined at our house with the other generals. We sought to show them by every means our gratitude. They seemed also to have much friendship for us, and yet, at the same time, this miserable Carter, when the English General William Howe had burned many hamlets and small towns, made the horrible proposition to the Americans to chop off the heads of our generals salt them down in small barrels, and send over to the English one of these barrels for every hamlet or little town burned. But this barbarous suggestion, fortunately, was not adopted. While the Baroness was still adjusting to life as a noble prisoner, the Carters welcomed their first child in April 1778. Philip Schuyler Carter was baptized in Boston on April 14th, and named after his grandfather. The next year, they welcomed a second child, also baptized in Boston, and named her Catherine, or Kitty, after her grandmother. Whatever tension had existed between the Carters and the elder Schuylers after the kids eloped was smoothed over with these strategic namings. John Carter was not yet a wealthy husband who could keep Angelica in comfort for the rest of her days, but he was working on it. In her biography of Eliza Schuyler Hamilton, Talar Mazeo described how Carter chased his dream of recovering his fortune, dabbling in several businesses that had the prospect for big payouts. John Carter, as he still styled himself, spent his days hustling for new business opportunities, with projects that included a bit of banking and shipping insurance, and, more to his liking, some high-risk currency and land speculation. When cash was tight, he made up the difference by gambling. The British officers who invited him to their parties also grew wary. John Carter quickly gained a reputation in Boston as a skillful card shark. Baroness Radiesel's husband tried to warn General Burgoyne. Gambling with John was a good way to lose a fortune. 
At first, the general laughed off the Baron's advice. Later, chagrined, Burgoyne confessed, I did not understand you and what you mentioned in your note about Carter. But General Anstruther, who has just now come into dinner, tells me of Carter's gambling. I was not of the party, nor out of my house all day yesterday, which was lucky, for I hear the little man carried off money in all his pockets. It's not clear to me whether John Carter was a great gambler or simply a cheat, but he seemed to be able to turn to cards whenever his other business ventures were lagging. Finally, after about two years in Boston, Carter struck on the business model that would finally allow him to realize a vision of newfound wealth. Instead of auditing the books of the Continental Army as they requisitioned food, munitions, and other supplies, he'd sell them the supplies himself. This was the line of business that would eventually lead the family out of Boston and back to Britain, but not before Carter annoyed a certain baroness one more time. In her memoir, she describes the 40th birthday party she threw for King George III in revolutionary Cambridge. On the 3rd of June, 1778, I gave a ball and a supper in celebration of the birthday of my husband. I had invited to it all the generals and officers. The Carters also were there. We danced considerably, and our cook prepared us a magnificent supper. As the birthday of the King of England came upon the following day, which was the 4th, it was resolved that we would not separate until his health had been drank, which was done with the most hearty attachment to his person and interests. Never, I believe, has God Save the King been sung with more enthusiasm or more genuine goodwill. All eyes were full of tears, and it seemed as if everyone present was proud to have the spirit to venture to do this in the midst of our enemies. Even the Carters could not shut their hearts against us. She also pointed out that having seen so many Brits go into a single home and start toasting the king's health, the neighbors surrounded the house in case what they were witnessing was a mutiny. It must have been nice to be a member of the noble officer class and not an enlisted soldier shivering in a drafty old barracks. Speaking of the wealthy officer class, Angelica's father would face a court-martial in the fall of 1778. During the Saratoga campaign, General Gates had accused him of dereliction of duty, and this would be Schuyler's chance to clear his good name. Mazzeo's Eliza biography says that both Angelica Carter and Elizabeth Schuyler returned to Albany to support their father. Then, when the trial ended, Eliza and Angelica returned to Boston. Days passed as the sisters managed a wartime household, rocking baby Philip to sleep and haggling with merchants. At night, when John was home, there were rounds of dinner parties and assembly balls all winter. The idea of the flirtatious Angelica acting as the chaperone to her younger, steadier sister raised more than one astonished eyebrow. Angelica was known especially for her risque fashion choices, and people tutted that it was the young Mrs. Carter who needed a chaperone. A French fleet arrived in New England in the summer of 1778 to try to dislodge the British from Newport, Rhode Island, and John Carter quickly realized that they too would need supplies. After the British finally abandoned the city, the Carters anticipated that the French would soon take over the use of the port. Mazzeo says that the family moved to Newport in the autumn of 1779, but without Eliza. 
Eliza went to stay with her aunt in Morristown, New Jersey, where Alexander Hamilton started his courtship of her. In a 2017 article, historian J.L. Bell described the partnership that finally made Carter worthy of Lin-Manuel's lyrics about him. In 1780, Carter became partners with former Continental Army Commissary General Jeremiah Wadsworth of Connecticut as the main supplier for General Rochambeau's troops in North America. The French needed food and supplies for thousands of men. Unlike the Continental Congress, whose paper money was rapidly losing value, France could pay in specie, or hard currency. Wadsworth and Carter got a cut of everything they supplied. They also gained excellent credit that they could use for their other ventures, and money that they could lend to other businessmen. As a result, by the end of the war, Wadsworth and Carter were very rich. In 1782, Wadsworth and the Carter family moved to France, in part to collect the last of the money that the French army owed them. Sometime that year, or maybe the next, John Carter revealed a shocking secret to his family and close business contacts, though Angelica may have already been in the know. John Carter was actually John Barker Church. News of this name change spread slowly on this side of the Atlantic, though the family made their debut in Europe under their new old name. As the family was making their move to France, James McHenry of Baltimore wrote a letter to Alexander Hamilton on August 11, 1782, giving his opinion of the general's sister-in-law and her husband. Mr. Carter is the mere man of business, and I am informed has riches enough with common management to make the longest life very comfortable. Mrs. Carter is a fine woman. She charms in all companies. No one has seen her of either sex who has not been pleased with her, and she pleases everyone chiefly by means of those qualities which made you the husband of her sister. Now that they could finally live in comfort for all their days, the church family did finally sail off to London but not until 1785. After leaving the brand new United States in 1783, the family spent a couple of years in Paris, then moved back to John's ancestral home. During their brief sojourn in France, the churches ran into the diplomatic Adams family, and in a letter to her niece Elizabeth Cranch on December 3rd, 1784, Abigail Adams was a bit acerbic about meeting the family that she had known in Boston as the Carters. Mr. and Mrs. Church are here, too, alias Carter. Mrs. Church is a delicate little woman. As to him, his character is enough known in America. Whether the incident that drove John Church to change his name and flee to America was a duel, a disownment, or a simple bankruptcy, it was nothing that his newfound wealth couldn't patch over. The 1794 book about the Whig Club made a lot of hay out of church and his fortune of 90,000 pounds sterling. The long-wished moment at length arrived. The strength of Great Britain was exhausted in the long struggle, and her rebellious sons triumphed over a parent who had too tenderly cherished them. A general amnesty was passed, and all offenses, by the policy or clemency of the British government, were buried in oblivion. Mr. Church seized the advantage of it, 
He applied himself assiduously to reduce to order his various concerns, and within a few months after the definitive treaty was signed, he embarked for England with a fortune of £90,000. He landed in his native country with views and sentiments far different from those with which he quitted it. He was careful to shun those who had known him as the humble tradesman and indigent bankrupt. With a disgraceful reluctance, he parted with a small portion of his immense wealth, scantily to reimburse a few hundreds that he had borrowed before his departure, and to satisfy some claims at play which he had left unpaid. But the bulk of his creditors had signed his certificate and could make no legal demand, and the honor of a gamester is superior to every transaction but what regards the gaming table. It's not easy to figure out how to calculate inflation over hundreds of years, but that £90,000 fortune was pretty significant. Right about the same time that the church family was getting settled back into England under their real name, John Quincy Adams paid a visit to John Carter's old business partner during a visit to Hartford, writing in his diary on August 25, 1785, I was much fatigued when I arrived and took a nap after which I went and visited Colonel Wadsworth, who arrived in town last evening. We went and drank tea with Colonel Wadsworth, who lives in a very elegant manner. He made a very large fortune by being agent for the French army with Mr. Carter, or rather, Church. Meanwhile, the Church family was encountering more old American friends on the other side of the pond. Painter John Trumbull's autobiography reveals how he rekindled his friendship with the former John Carter in Britain, and how the financier put his fortune to work for the painter. In London, 1784, my acquaintance with this gentleman was renewed under the name of John Barker Church. Carter had been but a nom de guerre, where he lived in great elegance. And although I was now but a poor student of painting and he rich, honored, and associated with the great, Mr. Church continued to treat me on the footing of equality, and I frequently dined at his table with distinguished men. Church offered Trumbull a generous line of credit in 1786 that really helped keep the artist afloat in Europe, and which was eventually paid back in 1797. By 1788, the Church family had purchased a large country estate and a townhouse in London checking all the boxes required to run for Parliament, which is exactly what John did in 1790. It's amazing that someone who not only very, very publicly denounced Parliament, but also actively worked for the Patriot cause against the British government just a few years before, could get elected to that same body. But that's exactly what happened. He served for six years as a member of the loyal opposition, and then started laying the groundwork for his family's return to the United States. The churches eventually settled back into New York in 1799, where their real estate investments kept the fortune growing. After Angelica's death in 1814, a 2018 article by Danielle Funicello for Historic Hudson Valley points out, the children scattered, and John moved back to England for the last time. Her article notes, The children, no strangers to travel, fanned out. Philip founded a town named Angelica after his mother in western New York and remained there until his death. John Barker Jr. spent a good deal of his time in the Hudson River Valley before moving back to Paris for the last 30 years of his life. 
Elizabeth married Rudolf Bunner and lived out her life in Oswego. Catherine Church, young Kitty, who was baptized and probably born in Boston, did eventually move back here. She married Bertrand Kruger in time for their first son, Eugene, to be born in Boston in 1803. To learn more about how the Schuyler sisters spent their years in Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 274. I'll have links to all the primary sources I cited this week, including letters and diaries from Alexander Hamilton, Philip Schuyler, John Trumbull, Abigail Adams, John Quincy Adams, and the Continental Congress itself. I'll also link to articles by J.L. Bell, Winifred Thornton, and Danielle Funicello, as well as Tilar Mazeo's biography of Elizabeth Schuyler and that scurrilous 1794 book of political profiles by the anonymous author. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and most active on Twitter. If you're on Mastodon, you can find me as at hubhistory at better.boston. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop me a line, and I'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. Before I let you go, I want to say hello to Pam's mom. I was able to invite a handful of listeners to the recent Lanterns and Luminaries event at Old North, and the way the evening worked out, I didn't have a chance to meet anyone who I invited. We can blame it on my crutches and not being able to easily navigate a crowded space. However, while I didn't get to meet anyone who I invited, I did get to meet a few new listeners. I don't remember any of your names, but hello. And for the listener who said she got hooked on the show through her daughter, Pam, thank you, Pam, and hello, Pam's mom. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.